Hi there, you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name's Matt Wakeling. Thank you so much for joining me. Now today, episode number 51, we speak to the highly respected American blues rock guitarist Keith Wyatt. Now Keith's resume is crazy long as you'll find out during our interview, but here are the dot points. Keith spent over 30 years as an instructor at the Guitar Institute of Technology after an initial stint as one of the first students to go through the school. Keith plays with the iconic rock band The Blasters, and he runs the online blues guitar school. Now, if you're of a certain vintage, like mine, you'll remember the early days of guitar video instruction, things like Hot Licks and REH. Now, Keith was uh, right at the forefront of that, working in producing a lot of those REH videos, including the infamous Ingve Malmsteen video. We find out all about that. That's a crazy story. Plus, many more great stories of all the amazing musicians that Keith has played with, people like Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, that's a nuts story as well. Uh, Albert Collins, Jeff Berlin, Mick Taylor, and the list goes on and on. All right, but first, before we get to that interview, here is a word from my friends Mick and Jeff from the Amps and Axes podcast. Hey, podcast world. I'm Jeff Bober. And I'm Mick Marcellino of Amps and Axes. That's right. And we've got a cool podcast that talks with guitarists, manufacturers, engineers, and techs. Yeah, so check us out every Saturday on iTunes. And... Google Play. That's right. And as we're always saying... Onward. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Mick. Hey, I also need to thank Joe Elliott. Now, Joe was on the Guitar Speak podcast in episode 40. Fantastic jazz fusion player. And worked alongside Keith Wyatt, uh, today's uh, interviewee, for many, many years at GIT. And in fact, it was Joe who helped get me in touch with Keith and, uh, and Scott Henderson as... Uh, You'll know if you've been listening to the show for the last little while. So thank you, Joe. I really, really appreciate it. All right, here's a bit of Keith's playing before we speak to him. It's a track called Daddy Rolling Stone from the Blasters album 41144. Now, let me pre-warn you. Here comes the tone. Welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Great, great to have you on. You've uh, you've had an amazing career. Um, you have lots of playing and teaching, and uh, going as strong as ever by by the looks of things. But what what started you off? So I believe you you're brought up in Washington D.C. What what led you to the guitar as a young man there? Well, it was probably um, it's such a cliche, but. You know, I can remember seeing the Rolling Stones on TV uh-huh. and just thinking yeah. they were the coolest looking guys, you know. <laughs> they had long hair, you know, it was just like, that's that's what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. That's a good cliche, I reckon. Well, you know, it, it worked. I mean, uh, you know, it, it certainly inspired 
a whole lot of guitar players for a long time. So yeah, kept me in business. <laughs> That's fantastic. What um, when did you start playing? How old were you when you finally picked up a guitar? Well, I was 15, and I had been arguing with my folks for a couple of years before that that I wanted to play guitar, and they said, well, no, you should take piano lessons. I don't know if they thought the guitar was a serious instrument, but I finally wore them down, and so they bought me a guitar for my 15th birthday and got me lessons, and so that was uh, where I started. Great, great. Do you remember the guitar? I believe my first... Well, see, I might have had a rental guitar at the beginning because, you know, they didn't want to invest until they thought I was really ready. Yeah, but the sure. first electric guitar I had was a uh, it was a Kappa. And Kappa was one of those off-brands that was kind of a Fender copy. I'm not even sure where it was made. It might have been made in Japan or maybe it was made in Germany. I don't know. But uh -huh. uh, just a cheap, solid body, you know. Yeah, cool. So starting on, on an electric yeah, yeah, I pretty much knew that that's what I wanted to do. I had a buddy um, who wound up becoming a cardiologist, which was a smart career move, but he had an electric guitar before I did, and I used to hear him through his bedroom window plunking out some surf tunes. I thought, oh, man, you know, that's, <laughs> that's it. You know, acoustic is for squares, man. I, you know, I definitely want to get an electric. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So straight away you're, you're rocking. Yeah, pretty much. That's what I wanted to do. I played, uh, you know, rock and roll songs. I was into surf music, uh, which was pretty big at the time. And, um, yeah, just kind of evolved from there. You know, it was when I was growing up as a player after having played a couple of years was when guitar really came on strong in, in popular music and all the British bands started to click and you had the guitar hero emerge you know so hendrix and clapton and jeff beck and jimmy page and all that and it was just like oh my god you know it was it was it was a pretty wild time to be studying guitar for sure that's that's awesome and were you trying to learn some of those tunes that you're listening to i was doing my best you know um it was it was <laughs> well let, let me put it this way i i empathize with all my students because i say look i know exactly what you're going through you know, you hear it, you want to play it, and the fingers just don't cooperate, you know. And I can remember I was in high school. I was probably about 17 or something, and my band got hired to play at a high school dance. So everybody in school was out there in the audience, and our first song was Hey Joe. And I went to play the intro to Hey Joe, and my, my, my fingers just froze. And <laughs> I could barely get through. It was just horrible. And then somebody out in the audience laughed. You know, oh, it was like no. this is the lowest moment of my life. But uh, it also taught me that uh, preparation is the key. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, it was it was a life lesson. Wow. And you hung in there. You kept playing. So good for well, you. Yeah. <laughs> Through the, the humiliation, yeah. Was there... Um, I, know, I know in Washington there's players like Danny Gatton and, um, and Roy Buchanan. Well, from there, was there much of a guitar scene there that you were checking out? Well, there was at the time, though. I was a little too young, I think, and, and too involved in my little niche. You know, growing up in my high school, uh, as, as music evolved in the 60s, it kind of split. And in Washington, you know, they, I think it was George Clinton said it's the chocolate city with the vanilla suburbs, you know. And I, I grew up in the vanilla suburbs, and you either had to choose between 
soul music or psychedelic. And that was that was a real argument. I mean, you know, that was for real. And so I thought, well, all of my guitar heroes play in these rock bands and they're all kind of psychedelic. So I guess I'm going to go psychedelic and play lead guitar, you know, whereas all the soul bands, the guitar players all just played rhythm, you know, I thought, well, you know, that's not so cool. I found out later, much to my uh, chagrin, that I, 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 there was an inaccurate, uh, uh, you know, distinction. But uh, in any case, um, I was playing uh, songs by The Doors and Iron Butterfly and, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and meanwhile, um, you know, guys like Danny Gatton, well, he was still pretty young at that time. He was a kid. Okay. But Roy Cannon was a, he was a known guy and he was playing blues and country and um he was just on a different plane than i was i didn't start to appreciate that he was sort of a neighbor until later you know sure yeah so when when did you make it to the west coast and, and relocate to san francisco yeah well i had uh friends who were going to school out in california and i was going to school college that is in in uh around uh the east coast i went to university of maryland and uh after a couple of years of that i said man you know dc it's it's, it's a great town if you're into politics but not for music and california was just jumping off at the time you know it was like it was heaven or seemed to be for musicians so i had a buddy who was going out to school and said well you want to hop in the car we'll drive across country so there we went wow well so, uh, that was about 1972 i think okay yeah so, the west coast and then just just stayed you know cool and um and what were you doing were you did you have to finish college or we just jump straight into playing well a little of both um i wanted to finish college and and as fate would have it i saw a little blurb in some magazine or other about this school that was being um set up a college called new college and it was in uh outside of san francisco and they mentioned that um there were some music related people that were teaching there and one of them was a guy named norman dayron norman had been a producer at chess records and was involved in the whole chicago scene with uh paul butterfield mike bloomfield electric flag and so they said well mike bloomfield is going to be doing you know clinics i said whoa you know that sounds like the school for me yeah cool so yeah i went up there and i met mike a couple of times and and it wasn't really a music school at all but i met a lot of people that were involved in music and learned a lot about music and made friends there that were involved in music and so it kind of got got me settled in terms of being in California and playing music. And then I stuck around San Francisco for a couple of years playing in top 40 bands and so forth. And San Francisco, the scene had come and gone, you know, the, uh, the psychedelic thing was long gone. And um, so the San Francisco music scene was actually fairly small. And I kept looking sort of down towards LA and thinking, man, that, that must be what's really happening, uh -huh. you know? Yep, yep. I had a buddy who lived down in L.A., and I would go and visit him, and it just seemed like, you know, this is like, you know, there's you walk down the street, and there's music stores, and there's studios, and there's studio musicians, and it's really, this is really a professional music town. And then I saw another thing in Guitar Player Magazine that said there was this new guitar school that was going to start up, 
by a guy named Howard Roberts, who was a, a studio musician. Yeah, and a huge jazz giant as well. Well, yeah, and funny enough, my uh, guitar teacher back in Washington, when I when I you know at age seventeen or whatever, I I thought I was I'm beyond guitar lessons now. You know, <laughs> I don't need this anymore. He said, "Well, okay, you know, good luck to you, but let me <laughs> let me give you a suggestion." He said. He said, you should get some records by this guy named Howard Roberts. And I thought, Howard Roberts, yeah, you know, that's, and he, you know, he said he's a very hip musician. He plays jazz, but he plays in a, in a style that you can kind of get to more easily than a lot of jazz guys. And so I remember the name, and frankly, I never listened to a Howard Roberts record. But when I saw Howard's name associated with this new guitar school, Guitar Institute of Technology, I thought that's what I need because I really never studied music in a serious way, and my guitar playing had holes all over the place, and so that would be my kind of finishing school. So I moved to L.A. to go to GIT. That was 1977. Awesome. Now that's that's really early on in GIT's history. I think is that like the what second or third year? Well, it was the first year. Uh, the school started. They launched their first class in. March of 77, and then um, the owner, uh, Pat Hicks, realized that to pay the rent, he had to get more students in a hurry, and uh, so he had a, a class start in June, Okay, yep. three months later, and that was me and a bunch of other guys, of course, and, and then from there, it always was just in March and September twice a year, but that was the only June class, I think, ever. Okay, yeah, uh, wow many years but uh yeah one of my classmates was uh, one of your uh, compatriots uh, ron lee okay yeah on lee's music factory so me and ron became buddies and yeah it was it was just a fantastic experience oh, very cool very cool now I've, I've spoken to a couple of a few guys who've been to git um joe elliott was really keen to get there um mm -hmm. scott henderson was there uh, brett garson they all turned up like in the early days but not quite as early as you. Can you paint the picture of what GIT was like in that second round of students? Was it a big? Was there many other students there? What were the facilities well, it, like? It, yeah, it was. It, it was. Uh, it was in its infancy, of course, but um, it really it just hit the right note at the right time. It was, you know, guitar had already been the dominant instrument in pop music for like 20 years, you know, ever since the late 50s. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, and yet it was still treated as kind of a, a second-class instrument, like, you know, yeah, you can take lessons, but who would want to... If you're going to study guitar in college at that point, your only choice was to study classical. And you could have a, you know, if you owned an electric, good for you, but don't bring it to school, you know. Uh-huh, yes. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, this was a school that for the first time on a, on a, on a serious level... Uh, said let's study this instrument and howard's uh, real brilliance was that he knew how to boil down very complex or seemingly complex subjects into very uh accessible methods and ideas and so he said well you know in 12 months you can learn what you need to know you know i'm, I'm not going to make you into a professional in 12 months but i'll show you everything you need to know to be a professional in 12 months and how to learn the instrument, how to organize it. And so right out of the gate, I think within, you know, a couple of months of the first ads going out, guitar players all over the country and, you know, starting to 
even spread out around the world just said, yes, that's, you know, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, so, right. yeah, so maybe there were 50 students in my class, um, maybe 40, 30 or 40 in the first group. Yeah, and then, wow. 50, um, yeah, when I was there, it was about 75 students all in, you know. And, uh, of course, everybody was a guitar player and everybody was just just passionate. And there were four teachers. Howard was involved, but he wasn't teaching classes day by day. It was Joe DiOrio, uh, uh, Ron Eshte, Don Bach, and they brought in uh, a fourth guy named Jackie King. And um, they were all just like unbelievable, like they just had the thing wired. You know, it's like up and down and sideways. And so you kind of was, you were assigned to a group. And so out of my class, I was in one of the two groups and, and I think one of the groups wound up with, well, you sort of had your main teacher. So you got Joe or you got Ron or you got Don, you know, and then they would mix up and do different classes as well. But my main teacher was Jackie and, and Jackie was from Texas, uh, kind of a Western swing slash bebop guitar player, phenomenally skilled, uh, wound up playing with Willie Nelson for years. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, you'd have a reading class with Ron, and then you'd have a technique class with Joe DiOrio, and then, you know, just all these, I mean, it was just intensive, day in and day out. And then outside of class, it was like you'd go to the lab, and you'd sit down and practice, and they had these, what they call speed learning modules, which <laughs> they're kind of cute by today's standards, but at the time, it seemed like revolutionary and it was it was a little metal like like a kind of a holder that had in it there was a there was a, a cassette tape player there was an egg timer uh-huh <laughs> uh, yeah there was a, a an electronic metronome yeah and uh gosh that was probably about it but you would get your assignment and it would be howard had broken it down like single string technique learn to play a major scale okay you're going to play you know, major scale in the in the key of B flat. You know, in pattern number so and so at a metronome setting of 88 in eighth notes for two minutes. You know, so you'd set your egg timer for two minutes, put on your headphones, and the the click would be set for 88 or whatever, and you'd play that scale up and down with ultimate concentration for two minutes, and then he would say, "Okay, take a break for 30 seconds." It's like, wow, really? You know, and now the next exercise is, is uh, you know, play the minor scale in, in G, in triplets or whatever. You know, it was that kind of thing. It was, it was broken down into these minute little uh, uh, parcels of information. And his concept was that if you concentrated fully on just the first note and then how the first note connects to the next note, and then you connect the third note to the first two and so on and so on, you're going to just develop as a player in, in geometric terms, because how can you not, you know, you're, you're connecting these things in such a methodical way that it can't fail. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. The problem was that nobody could really hang with it because it was so, it was, it required such discipline and such concentration that 90% of the students after a little while just said, ah, God, I can't do this. You know, 
and they would sort of get the gist of it, but then they would lapse into their old bad habits and <laughs> okay, sort of yeah. you know, screw around and jam and you know all that. But it was it was just a full on guitar environment. There was nothing else to do but play guitar. And you know, I had a roommate um, who was a guitar player student, and he was great. And so I'd listen to him practicing. I better practice, you know. And it was just like that. It was like if you didn't practice six hours a day, you felt like a loser. So it almost didn't matter what you were playing. It was just that that environment and and feeding off of each other and being surrounded by music and then all the visiting guys that would come in and play. And you just felt like this is unbelievable. You know, you're, you're getting exposed to the absolute best that there is. And um, it was the best place to be if you were a guitar player, without doubt, at yeah. that time. Sounds amazing. And uh, you ended up teaching there. But before I ask you about that, um, who were some of the guests that were, were popping through in that, that uh, time? You know, well, uh, you know, Howard, of course, was uh, he was on the A-list of studio guitar players. So he brought in his buddy Tommy Tedesco, oh, who cool. wound up. Yeah, Tommy wound up investing in the school because he saw it and said, you know, this is, gonna, this, is, this is a great idea. And so he became a regular guy, clinician. Um, and then, you know, uh, all the studio guys, Larry Carlton, wow. uh, you know, Tim May, uh, gosh, who was whoever was playing guitar professionally in L.A. at the time That's would cool. come in. Yeah, Joe Pass, you know, Larry Coriel, uh Gosh, I, I, you know, Pat Martino, uh, you know, uh, you name it. They, they were they were coming through there because they were all buddies of Tommy or Howard. And, of course, if Tommy called you, you were going to show up because you wanted to be <laughs> on the good side because he might call you for a session, you know. Yeah, right. Everybody. <laughs> Pat, Pat Matheny. I remember Pat Matheny doing a seminar, and he was very young, just out of school, basically, but already had made his mark. and. He didn't like to wear shoes, so he was sitting on a on a stool, <laughs> you know, sort of picking his toenails while oh. talking to the guitar. You know, it was that kind of a scene. It was just like, are you kidding me? This is insane. <laughs> That's cool. So, how how long after you um, how long after your graduation was it uh, until you became a teacher there yourself? Well, it was literally three months. Uh, to my advantage, the school was expanding quickly. So by the second year, when I was graduating and, and the new classes were coming in, they they needed new teachers in a hurry. And so your entry-level position was as a lab instructor, which meant uh, you would walk around the labs and just kind of look over the students' shoulders and answer questions or kind of point them in the right direction or, you know, help them out. And um, so sort of just kind of being an assistant, if you will, classroom okay. assistant. Yep. And then uh, because I had been through the program and knew the material and kind of the, the uh, philosophy, uh, at the same time, Howard, I, I found out, he, you know, the curriculum was literally two weeks ahead of the classes. I mean, you know, I thought he had mapped all this thing out. It was cased in stone, you know, but he was really writing as fast as he could to stay ahead of the calendar. And he needed slave labor to help him out. So, uh, <laughs> I got recruited, uh, along with, uh, uh, Howard Alden, who was now like a, you know, he's one of the greatest jazz guitar players in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Howard was a phenomenal, he was a child prodigy on the banjo. I mean, you know, oh, forget really? it. 
Yeah, and wow. then and then just became a prodigy on everything. I mean, he was just unbelievable. But me and Howard and a guy named Charlie Fector were kind of Howard Roberts slave labor. He would pay us a pittance uh, to do this uh, dirty work of of just laying out the curriculum, you know, literally with, with a glue stick and a pair of scissors and cutting and pasting. I mean, literally, you know, physically, because that's how you had to do it back then. And uh, then Xeroxing. And so we spent a lot of late nights with Howard and Howard loved to drink. And so he would get a couple of six packs of Heineken and just start pounding them, smoked a lot of pot and, you know, just get higher and higher. And so he'd be telling stories while we're doing all this work. <laughs> oh, and it was like, yeah, this is graduate school, you know, I had a program, and now I get to hang out with Howard. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, the, yeah, I got hired in, uh, like, September of 78 to be a, a, a lab instructor and then started teaching classes gradually as it, as it went along. Yeah, I think, um, so you, you hung around until 2014, so if my maths is correct, that's, what's that, 36 years that's that's precise yes <laughs> wow Incredible. Six years. fantastic like, obviously you're doing a lot of playing um at the same time so i i don't want to discount your playing career as well so i definitely want to talk about that um but while we while we're talking git um sure. you ended up getting very involved in in putting curriculum together yourself eventually as well yep. um yeah it seems like you guys kind of followed the the arc of technology so you're talking about cut literal cutting and pasting and the xerox machine um but uh you seem to follow technological advances and, and incorporate that in in your teaching as well well yeah i mean it's it's inevitable you know if you if you still use a typewriter you're going to be somewhat restricted so <laughs> yeah as time went by um uh you know pat hicks saw that uh using video could be a great tool and this is when vhs was still a brand new thing they were still trying to figure out should it be vhs or yeah so uh, beta max yeah, yeah 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 and so that's how early it was and the idea of video instruction was still like an untested concept and um so pat had the idea which was a, it was a great idea to uh video record all of the classes and then he would have the, uh, the the classes all available in the library at, at uh, study modules. And students would go and they would watch the instructor teach the material. And then the class itself, the, the, the classroom with the teacher and all the students sitting in the same room would become more of a application thing. You know, where, well, okay, you guys already know what I'm talking about here, so let's talk about how to use it. Yeah, that's cool. Well, again, people being people, Nobody watched the videos. <laughs> <laughs> they just show up in the class. Hey, what are we talking about? Huh? You know, you know. Okay. So uh, that's the, the, the flaw in the uh, in the ideal education system is that it's still human beings. And so you design it. But then the reality is that people are going to be the way they are. So anyway, the, the videos were, were shot in, in huge numbers. And. So there was that that video classroom, which was a cool idea. However, the curriculum kept evolving, and so then you had to keep shooting new videos. And then, you know, the the as you revise, you had to keep, you know, this flow of videos going constantly, and it was incredibly expensive and labor intensive. So 
it was just too hard to maintain it. You know, unlike today where you could shoot it on your iPhone, you know, back then you had to have bulky cameras and the editing process yeah, yeah. was very laborious. Yes. Yeah, just the cost of the tapes. I mean, everything was just, it was really fighting against that that concept. So that kind of fell by the wayside. But <clears throat> meanwhile, uh, other uh, smart uh people started to think about video instruction and one of them was Roger Hutchinson who was from Seattle and he was an old friend of Don Mock and Don was one of the first teachers at MI and uh, so Don and Roger kind of teamed up and started uh, REH which was a video instruction label and so uh, Roger would fly to LA and he would just kind of come around GIT and say hey you want to do a video because he knew you know this was an up-and-coming thing, and having the GIT association was very cool, and it yeah, right. helped yep. market it. So, mm -hmm. so he got a bunch of GIT teachers to do videos. Um, I did some, and uh, you know, of course, Don Mock did a bunch. Yeah, and, Steve. Yeah. And, then, and then, as it expanded, um, some of us became directors of other people. So I directed videos for like, uh, you know, I was involved in the Ingve Malmsteen notorious video shoot and, and uh, you know yeah Vincent and uh yeah you know uh you know uh Herb Ellis I mean it was like covering the gamut of guitar playing yeah yeah I think you did Brett Garsheads as well is that yeah true? sure yeah, yeah cool yeah tell, tell me about the uh just quickly about the Yngwie shoot well I think Don was officially the director and it was one of those it, it was kind of a spinal tap moment uh, <laughs> because Inkvay, of course, is incredibly arrogant and he plays his ass off. So he backs it up. You know, it's like sure. he, doesn't, yeah. he doesn't just talk the game. He, he walks and, you know, phenomenal player, but incredibly arrogant. And so he came in all, he was rock star to the bone, you know, <laughs> but his job was to sit on a stool and show licks, right? Well, that doesn't, it's just not in his mentality to play the same lick twice and break it down, you know? So he would, you know, Don would try to push him in a certain direction, you know, well, you know, you do a lot of this sweep picking or you do the string skipping or whatever it might be, you know, arpeggios. Can you talk about the diminished chord, you know? And he just, it would mentally just like drive him nuts, you know? <laughs> so he would, would like throw a pick at the cameraman. You go, what the f are you trying to get me to do here? And he had uh, his backup band were these Swedish guys, and the bass player from Sweden would play all the same licks that Ingve played, but he would play them on the bass. You know? Okay. And it's sort of like they say about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Fred Astaire was a great dancer, but Ginger Rogers danced the same in high heels backwards, yes, you know? Yeah, and so, that's yeah, here's, here's the bass player playing all of Ingve's <laughs> licks on the bass. And Ingve's getting more and more frustrated. Then he and the bass player would stop, and they'd start yelling at each other in Swedish, and the only words that were in English were the curse words. <laughs> so it'd be a bunch of Swedish and then and then a bunch of Swedish and then you know. And so this went on for quite a while. And eventually, you know, we shot hours and hours and hours of footage, and it you got, I don't know how long the video wound up being, but you, you wound up with, you know, 45 minutes of, of material. It was classic, you know. <laughs>
What can I do? Far out. Yeah. There are stories that he's mellowed out these days. <laughs> well, it happens to the best of us, but uh, yeah, he, he was he was really on his game at that point. Yeah, I bet. You um you got to play with some um really amazing guests while you were at GIT as well. So people like um Jack Bruce and uh, Mick Taylor and Albert Collins. Tell tell me about yeah. those, those things. Oh well, yeah, Jack Bruce. He came a couple of times and uh, he was friends with uh, Jeff Berlin. And uh, Jeff was quite young, you know, but another phenomenal player. Oh yeah. And uh, so uh, he brought Jack in. And so I think I was in a class teaching, and somebody came in and said, hey, man, Jack Bruce is playing in, in uh, Room A. That's what they called the main uh, concert hall. And uh, they need a guitar player, and you know all the Cream stuff, right? Yeah, because I had been listening to Cream a lot, you know? Yeah. So it was like, are you kidding me? So I went down the hall, and sure enough, there's Jack Bruce and uh, – Oh, uh, the drummer. Uh, oh, what was this? Ginger Baker. No, that was that was separate. Oh, okay, that's another thing. Jack and Ginger hated each other, you know. So Ginger <laughs> yeah. was a whole separate. That was a whole separate thing. Okay. So it was, it was the drummer from the Knack, and the Knack were pretty big at that time. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. In the early '80s. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh, then it was uh, Scott Henderson also got up and and cool. so we you know we all got up and played with with Jack. And he sang, you know, Spoonful, and he sang, like, you know, all of the Cream songs. And oh, it's like, wow. I, I'm on stage playing Cream songs with Jack Bruce. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, that was unreal. And then he came back a couple of years later, and Jeff said again, you know, hey, man, come on, you know, play with Jack. And I remember uh did a bunch of those tunes, and, it, it, you know, it was, it was in a – M.I. had moved into a new building and the concert hall was much bigger. It was packed. And uh, so it was, it was, you know, it's pretty high energy uh, vibe. And uh, one of the tunes that Jack wanted to do was a uh, theme for an imaginary Western, which is it's a rock ballad that has a lot of chords in it. And I knew the song kind of, but not really. Uh -huh. And Jeff uh, Berlin said, oh, yeah, OK, well, I'll 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 charted out for you so he quickly took a piece of paper and a pencil and he wrote out the changes so we started playing the song and then it turned to me and said take a solo you know it's like okay jeff i hope you mark the changes right because otherwise i'm screwed you know <laughs> oh, no. you know if I'm, I'm playing off the wrong chord here yeah, i'm just yeah. like a total idiot but <laughs> uh fortunately jeff was accurate and so we got through it and it, it worked out okay <laughs> but Jeff, and also he had memorized Clapton's solo on Crossroads, note for note, on the bass. Oh wow! That so is me amazing. and Jeff, and I knew it's note for note too. So me and Jeff played Clapton's solo from Crossroads, note for note, while Jack Bruce played bass and sang. And it was just like you're kidding, you know? This is this is nuts. That's the best. That's so cool. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Ginger was, uh, it was a few years later, um, okay. Tim Bogart was teaching at the school, and he had been contacted by um, a guy, It's it, this is a, there's a movie about Ginger, it's called Beware of Mr. Baker, oh, it's a yeah. documentary, yeah. you definitely want to watch it, 
and they referenced this period. Uh, he had been bouncing around. Cream was long gone, and all of his other bands had collapsed. And he was basically living in Italy, and Stone broke. And uh, so a sports promoter who was a big fan flew him to L.A. And Ginger was had he had taken up uh, polo, which is uh, a rather expensive hobby. <laughs> yes. So the the guy had to fly Ginger and all of his his polo ponies to L.A. from Italy, and he put Ginger up at this place uh, up north of L.A., and he said, while you're here, we'll put a band together, we'll just play some shows around town and make a little money, you know, just to get some cash going. So uh, he contacted uh, Tim Bogert, and Tim asked me, because he knew I knew the Cream songs again, you know. So me and Tim got together with Ginger, and uh, there were a couple of other players involved, too, another guitar player and a, and a singer. It was a, it was a motley collection, believe me. But um, we rehearsed and just you know it was like the easiest thing we can do is just play Cream songs because everybody knows them, and you don't have to get too you know inventive. So we did White Room and we did you know all that stuff, uh, Sunshine Love and all that. Awesome. And so we would rehearse with Ginger until Ginger and he, he smoked pot and drank like constantly until he got too high to play, and then the rehearsal was over. So we did a couple of rehearsals like that, and then the first show was at this club south of L.A. called, uh, it's near San Diego, it's called the Belly Up Tavern, and the promoter had rented a limousine, and uh, so we all met um, in West L.A. And, and piled into the limousine, you know, stretch, like, white limousine. And uh, so it's the whole band, and we're all driving down the 405 freeway. And if you know L.A., you know the 405 is a parking lot most of the time. And the club was quite a distance away. But, yeah, we got plenty of time, you know. Well, anyway, we're crawling through traffic. And Ginger's smoking pot get higher and higher. And then the limousine breaks down. And so the driver pulls to the side of the road and says, I can't go any further. The, you know, something wrong with the cooling. So they had to call a tow truck. So they towed the limousine to a gas station with all of us in it, you know, and so we're sitting at the gas station. The promoter gets another limousine. So the limousine shows up. We all pile in that one. Now it's getting kind of late. And so we're going down to 405. Still got a long way to go. Ginger's still drinking, still smoking. And we get to the club finally. It's the opening band has already finished their set. We pull up, and they got all of Ginger's drums set up on stage. And Ginger says, take those didn't want anybody touching his drums. Take all the microphones down. He had to set up his drums in front of the crowd, tweak them, which he you know, took 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, and eventually we get up on stage, and of course the first song is White Room, and I was elected to sing it. So we, we start White Room, and we're, you know, we get to the bridge, and suddenly Ginger stops. I turn around and look at him, and he gives me this cold stare. And the way that he counted White Room off, if you're into music, you know, it's 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 in 5-4, right? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's got an odd time signature. With that tom-tom kind of figure. And... Yeah. And he didn't count it off, like, one, two, three, four. He just went, five! Boom! <laughs> so, you know, he stopped. I turn around and look at him, like, what the hell is going on? He just starts, he says, five! Boom! Da-da-da-da! <laughs> And I don't know to this day what happened, 
but anyway, that was how we got started, and it kind of went downhill from there. Oh wow! Because he was he was high, and he was very unhappy, and everything was just kind of falling apart at the seams. So we did four or five shows in Southern Cal, and then he went off to his next adventure from there. But um, that was Ginger. Uh, yeah, Mick Taylor. You know, guys would show up. I did a rock guitar class, and guys would show up as guests. So Mick Taylor was there as a guest, you know, it was like incredible, you know, uh, you know, we're doing Rolling Stones songs with Mick Taylor, it's phenomenal. And then, uh, you know, Joe Walsh showed up and there were loads of, uh, like metal guys, you know, in LA, metal was huge, of course. And so yeah, the metal sure. guy, so that was all going on. And then, um, Albert Collins, um, he had been hired by Robert Roger Hutchinson to do a, an instructional video. And so, uh, Don mock asked me to, to help with that sort of play with Albert and sort of translate Albert's, uh, language. Cause he was not a, a schooled player, you know, translated into sort of normal musician, guitar player language. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was fantastic. I mean, what an opportunity. So wow. I played a couple of shows with Albert and, then we did the video, and so I sat across from him and asked him questions, and then later on went back and said, well, he's in open tuning and, and using a capo. Here's how you can play that same phrase in standard tuning, you know, yeah, that kind great. of thing. Awesome. Because so, he had that kind of C minor tuning, I think, from memory? Yeah, it was it was actually F minor. Oh, okay. uh, don't But, yeah, he would capo at, you know, if he was in C, he would capo at whatever, the ninth fret or something. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah. it was his own thing um but yeah it when you listen to him and then you understand the tuning it's like oh i get it yeah but it's okay. really hard to get that sound any other way that's cool because he was a hero of yours wasn't he absolutely a sweetheart you know he was he was just a professional in every sense of the word you know he would drive the bus when they were on the road he would they had to get the bus fixed he would be under the bus with a wrench i mean you know he he, he just lived the life and he he developed cancer and died very quickly, but he was playing right up until the end and played with more and more energy with the passing years. That's why he's such an inspiration to me, because as I get older, I look at him and say, look, there's no reason to cop the excuse that oh, I'm getting old. You know, it's like Luther Allison, who also died very suddenly of cancer, were just killing it the older they got, you know. Albert Collins later stuff through videos. Um, I'm not sure if he ever got to Australia, but um, oh yeah, absolutely, just laying into it. There's a band yeah. I I do, and we do a couple of Albert Collins tunes, and um, yeah, it's it's man, so much fun, so much fun trying yeah. even get close to the essence of those songs. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so during this time, you you're doing heaps of teaching at GIT. Are you finding time to play your own sort of gigs? Yeah, I played in a ton of bands, and like most bands, they come and they go, you know, and and. God, if I had back all those hours and hours, hundreds of hours that I spent in rehearsals for bands that eventually fell apart because of arguments or, you know, the bass player moved out of town or whatever, you know, yeah, yes. well, you roll the dice, you know, when you're, when you're playing in bands, you, you got to do it, but, um, it, it's a pretty low return on investment, you know, yeah. uh, however, you learn a lot about music about playing together etc cetera, etc cetera. and i was playing they were all different styles it was new wave which was quite popular at the time and sort of soul 
funk, you know, stuff that you wouldn't think I would have done because now, you know, I teach blues and whatnot, but it was all in the, in the mix. And, um, also, uh, you know, as the, the rockabilly thing, uh, became pretty big in LA, there were the stray cats, of course, but there were a lot of bands that were doing music that was influenced uh, by the same kind of stuff, you know, it was, it was sort of a hip thing. And so I was involved in that scene and, uh, there was a student at the school, a bass player named Patrick Woodward. And, um, uh, he told me one time, he said, I'm playing with this kid, uh, named, well, these two kids, these James Invelt, Ricky Invelt said, they're like 18 years old. They wear white sport coats. <laughs> we play, we play at the, at the whiskey and they get, you know, they pay me 80 bucks a night to be a side man. And they play for 45 minutes and the girls go crazy. <laughs> And I, you know, he said at that time it was like eighty. You get paid eighty bucks to do a show. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's only forty-five. Wow, that's fantastic. So he introduced me to James. So I played with James and Ricky, and you know, played the sort of uh, I was like the Scotty Moore, you know, yeah, to cool. Elvis, yeah. And so I played with James for years. Uh, we used to play every Monday night at this club. It became kind of a scene and. You know, people like Brian Setzer would come and sit in. And so uh, <clears throat> I was doing that while playing in other bands. And so then playing in a blues band with a guy named Juke Logan, a harmonica player, and played for years with Juke. And, and you know, just there, there's always been, a, it, ironically, for all of the kind of the, the glossy aspects of L.A., there's always been a, a kind of a root scene, and there's, especially by the beach, which is the last place you'd expect it, there's a heavy root, roots blues community, West Coast blues, and a lot of it was centered around a guitar player named Hollywood Fats, right? And um, Fats used to play every week down at this club um, in Hermosa Beach, and he was just a fantastic guitar player, you know, he came from a wealthy family, Beverly Hills family, but was the black sheep like Mike Bloomfield, who came from a very wealthy family and got into blues, you know. So uh, Fats played with Muddy Waters. He played with Albert King, and he just studied the stuff. He just wow. knew it. Cool. And um, so he inspired a lot of people, and then he wound up playing with the Blasters. When the original guitar player of the Blasters, Dave Alvin, left in 86, Fats joined and played with the Blasters for a while. And then he, unfortunately, like Mike Bloomfield, had a drug problem, and, and it killed him. And then um, after uh, Fats died, then it was uh, Smokey Hormel was the next guitar player, uh, Greg Hormel, who comes from the Hormel family of, of you know, uh, Hormel sausages, Vienna sausages, okay. you know. <laughs> Over here, they're very well known. I don't know about. You I, know, I, th I think we know the name, and it's probably through yeah. television or movies. Yeah, that yeah, it yeah. rings a bell. <laughs> but Smokey Hormel was another rich kid who played great, great guitar. And then he he wound up going off and uh, being a sideman for uh, uh, playing on sessions for. Uh, oh, what's his name? He's a really famous producer, Rick. Uh, uh, I can't think of his name. Anyway. He, he developed a whole other career. But then James Invelt joined the Blasters after Smokey left. And then James left, and he recommended me, right? So cool. it's like all these people that I had known and sort of 
played with and hung out with, and you know, it's a, it winds up being a very small community. So I joined in 1996, and so I've been with the band for 21 years now. Yeah, fantastic. You guys are busy too. Like you're, you're playing all the time. It looks like looking at your days. Well, for, yeah, it it actually ironically is more as time goes by. And uh, I'm leaving on Monday to do a three-week tour with the band uh, all through the Midwest and Southeast. And we just did a West Coast tour, and then we'll be doing an East Coast tour later in the year. And, and you know, so, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff going on there still, you know. Yeah, excellent. Man, yeah. I love that stuff. I was checking out the 41144 album, which you played uh-huh. on. That's yeah. great, man. It's... um. I'm interested. I'm interested to see how you would describe it. I'm hearing like surf and spy guitars and rockabilly yeah. and and rock and roll and all the great tones you associate with that stuff. Well, people ask us as they do every. You know, you get asked the same thing. What kind of music you guys yeah, play? You know? Yeah. And <clears throat> so the answer, the only answer that makes any sense is is we play American music. You know, and that always gets kind of a blank look. You know, and then you say, well, you know, American music is it's blues, it's country, it's rhythm and blues, it's Latin, you know, it's gospel, it's surf, it's rock, you name it, you know, it's all part of American music, and we play that stuff, and so, yeah, sure, there's surf in there, I love surf when I was growing up, and so I hear that twang, and it still kind of gets to me, and love playing blues, and, and then, you know, there's, there's, Country, as as I think of it, is is more what they now call alt country or traditional country. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, Nashville now is is a whole different animal. It's pop music, you know, with cowboy hats. But yeah, uh, you know, so we yeah we keep it on sort of the uh, the the down home side, I suppose I would say. Yeah. But with cool. all. Yeah, love it, man. There's um, there's some great tracks. There's uh, I love that uh, Boneyard, the Dick Tracy theme you guys do. Oh yeah, that's great. That's such a nasty twang on that, on that track. you pictured with either a blonde telly um, that looks like it's done a, a few gigs uh, or a Les Paul are they are they your main guitars yes yeah uh, these days touring it's always the Les Paul and I only bring one guitar you know okay. a lot of guitar bring you know I got seven guitars it's like I, it don't bother me you know <laughs> I bring one guitar I change strings before every show so I don't break a string yeah but guitar and it it's fine you know and the fact is i used to you know go see freddie king did he have three guitars no he had one guitar (laughs) and he would put it in baggage and it would you know in in his gig bag it would come down the baggage carousel at the airport that's just that's just what you did it was like not a big deal so anyway yeah that's that and then i used the telly for a whole lot of other stuff um but i've got other stuff you know i've got a 335 and a strat and all that i just don't take them out because they they're I, for the blasters being the the main guitar player, I got to fill the room. Yeah, I can. and the, the Les Paul is a room filler, you know. 
but it has the P90 pickups, which are a little bit brighter and, and twangier than uh, the humbuckers. Yeah. Cool. So it, it kind of splits the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a great compromise. I love, I love P90s in, in a Les Paul. What, um, what year is that? Is it any particular special model or? Oh gosh, I probably got it 20 years ago and uh -huh. bought it brand new from Guitar Center. Yeah. But it's a reissue from uh, 1954. Yeah. So cool. they, they, copied every every spec and over the years i broke the headstock off uh, generally just i abused it the, the the bridges wear out at the the strings dig holes in them so i replaced the bridge so it's not stock sure but i don't i don't buy guitars for collector purposes you know so they're all kind of beat up yeah cool i love that <laughs> how about yeah. your telly that that that's cool the one with the um you've got like a red extra um, something on the toggle switch to yeah, do yeah. what well, we all do with those tele switches to try and make them a bit easier yeah. to work. Well, I bought that guitar from a student who was leaving GIT, and, and his uh, his name was Dan Boole. And Dan, when he, uh, he graduated from GIT in 1983, I think, and went back to his home at the time in Georgia to join a band that was called the Black Crows. <laughs> and so Dan was in the Black Crows and then left the band for whatever reason uh -huh. before they had, they had their big yeah, record. Wow. Yeah, but um, he, I bought the, the telly off of him because he said, I'm getting rid of stuff because i got to move back home. I get, can't fit everything in the car. So I got it from him for 300 bucks, I think. And then um, like a lot of people do and i was just as dumb i said well it's a telly i like it but i wish it had a, i wish it was more like a strat so maybe i can make it kind of like a strat so i took a chisel to the you know body and <laughs> yeah yeah chiseled a hole for the strat pickup and so i had three pickups in it and yeah anyway i wound up going back to the original um thing but when i was playing in uh, pasadena with james Invelt uh every monday night a guy came down to the club one time and he said hey i got something for you and he gave me this little red knob, and it was painted like a four-speed shift lever. Oh, cool. Yeah, and so now all the paint is worn off, and it's just the plastic, okay. but I still have it on there. It's been on there for 30-some years. Nice, nice. And what about um, what about amps? So when you're touring, are you using backline, or do you take something out? Uh, we use backline when necessary, uh, but these days and for the last couple of years, I've been touring with the quilter. And oh, yeah, I don't yeah. know, I don't know if Quilters made it to Australia yet, but it's yeah, they it's have. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the guy Pat Quilter who invented it uh, made amps back in the '70s, and then turned his attention to Pro Audio QSC, is his company. Yeah, yeah, and, no, the power amps, well. Yeah, their stuff is everywhere. But uh, he came back to uh, amps, and he's designed this solid state amp. It's very powerful. Uh, but very clean, and you can turn it down, and it, it cleans up very nicely, but doesn't lose its character. The the tone knobs all actually work. You know, they make a difference when you turn them one way or the other. <laughs> That's cool. um, yeah, it's kind of no frills. He makes amps with frills on them, but this one's a no frills uh, amp, and it's just, you can make it loud and clean, and it has definition. You hit a low note, and it 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 pops like a like a piano string, you know, and then you hit a high note and it doesn't get screechy. And a lot of the Fender amps, they either sound flabby or or screechy, you know, and it's hard to find that middle ground. And when you do, then when you take it out on the road, 
after a while the tubes go and amps just they keep going they're solid state you can't really screw them up and so uh, i've got a 210 version that i use and then i bring along the version that has one eight inch speaker and that's what our singer uses oh cool you can lift it up with two fingers and uh so uh when we uh fly i've got another version they make which is a head that is the same power it's the same amp but it's just the head and then okay. we can rent cameras, you know that's cool that's great wow yeah. and are you running any pedals yep i run through a uh it's i made the pedal board out of a piece of plywood and glued some uh, uh, carpet on it and put Velcro on the bottom of the pedals. And it's, I've got a, uh, a tuner that runs into, uh, what's the first? It's a King of Tone. Oh, yeah, yeah, like the overdrive. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And They're that, awesome. Yeah, that, that runs into a, uh, it's a Boss Tremolo pedal, TU2. Mm-hmm which runs into a, an MXR carbon copy, which I set only for slapback delay. Oh, yeah, nice. And then that runs into a Boss uh, Fender reverb pedal, which emulates the sound of the reverb tank. Yeah. I have a, a tank at home, but you can't take those on the road, really. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, uh, this comes pretty close. So that's it, and uh, run that straight into the input of the amp. Yeah, So cool. I can tear it down in, in five minutes and, you know, walk in and out in one shot you know it's like uh that becomes more of a priority as you get older the weight and the the, the size <laughs> oh for sure but if you're still pulling your tone that's that's great i mean that's one of the great things about the, those class d amps they're um they're getting smaller and lighter and they're starting to sound really really great yeah and our bass player has the the quilter bass head which is 300 watts and weighs like a pound and a half and you put it through any cabinet you want and it, it's killing you know it's it's crazy yeah, so i'm cool nice that sounds awesome that sounds really cool so the blaster's coming to a town near you soon hey yep. um keith it's been awesome hearing about your career before we go we should um we should talk about the online blues guitar school which you've been running for a few years that looks awesome can you can you talk us through that yeah well by coincidence uh i left mi in 2014 and Right around the same time, um, I uh, got in touch with Artist Works, and I, I, I think, I think they called me. And and what had happened was, uh, you know, Artist Works. For those who aren't familiar with it, it's 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 an online uh, music instruction school uh, or a series of schools, I should say. That like each uh, teacher kind of creates their own curriculum, and it's very diverse. They have a strong bluegrass department, which encompasses, there's banjo, there's mandolin, there's vocals, you know, it's like a lot of different stuff in that area, guitar flat picking. Yeah, cool. Uh, and then they have, uh, you know, jazz guitar, Martin Taylor does like, uh, you know, jazz guitar and, and Matthias right. Oberg, or Andreas, I'm sorry, Andreas Oberg uh, does jazz guitar. Uh, and then, uh, Paul Gilbert, who is another old GIT alumnus, yeah, yeah, does the rock guitar thing, and so I've been in touch with Paul for years, you know, and so he he uh, started his school at Artist Works, and and he he called me up one time and said, hey man, you want to come over to my studio and we'll sit down and just play and talk, 
<coughs> and I'll put it up on my artist works um, site. So students can, you know, it's just fun for them to, you know, we'll talk about GIT and about blues and whatnot. So we did that. And then I got a call from uh, uh, the uh, director of artist works and she said, you know, we're looking to expand into a blues guitar and Paul, mention your name and so we talked and yeah sounds interesting and you know then a couple of months go by and anyway so i got another call and said yeah well let's let's do it you know and uh let's do it in like uh how does it sound like in two months it was like are you kidding me (laughs) (laughs) i have to design an entire program like that starts with you know hello this is a guitar you know and then (laughs) it it goes up to uh you know, let's play, uh, you know, BB King, whatever, you know. Um, so anyway, the, the, the fortunate side story there is that I had written a couple of books for uh, Hal Leonard. And one of them was uh, blues rhythm guitar and the other one was blues guitar soloing. And while I was busy with MI and with everything else, I was dragging my feet on writing the books. But as things started to wind down at MI, I found more time to write. And so I had Finally, and I spent, I, I'm not exaggerating, a solid year working on the on the soloing book, which finally got published, and, you know, they dropped like a stone into the ocean. I mean, you know, <laughs> book, it's a get-rich-slow scheme, shall we say. <laughs> it was, the benefit was that by organizing all that stuff that I had taught for 30 years to create the books, I kind of had the plan, you know. So I took the table of contents for each book and I just laid them out in a computer file and then started filling in what I would do on a video and adapting it, you know. Yeah, cool. So I managed to come up with it. So in October um, of 2014, I went up to the studio in, in Napa and uh, spent six solid days. I mean, it was it was exhausting uh, recording videos and there are dozens and dozens, over 100 videos um, that comprise the program. So when a student enrolls, uh, you subscribe, and you can have uh, subscribe for three months, six months, a year. And it's, uh, I must say, I think it's very economical, especially when you compare it to private lessons. But you gain access to the entire curriculum from beginning to end. And then you have the option of sending uh, video exchanges. And unlike Skype lessons, like we're doing now, where you're getting up early in the morning. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to be at the same place at the same time. Um, these are non-time specific. So I get videos <clears throat> through the site and I get up in the morning and I come up to my studio and and open up the file and there's like three videos waiting. And there's one from a guy in the UK and one from a guy in Australia and one from a guy in South America yeah. or from Ohio, you know, or, you know, anywhere in the world. And um they're sending me a video based on the curriculum where they're saying, well, I, I'm trying to play this shuffle. I'm not sure if I've got it right. And they play it, you know, two minutes. And then I sit in my studio and I record a response. And I say, hey, you know, you, you're pretty close, but do this instead of that. You know, and I demonstrate it and upload it, send it back. So then we have this video exchange. And um, so in that way, they get some personal attention. And of course, in, in terms of, learning anything you know most people have very similar questions they face very similar challenges so the other aspect is that all of the video exchanges are posted on the site for everybody to to look at 
So if I interact with a student in Taiwan who's trying to figure out how to play a shuffle, the questions that that student has are similar to the question that the guy in, in Spain has, you know. And so by watching the other student, you can learn from the exchange and then they don't have to send me a video and ask the same question. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it, you know. And between the student's question and my response, they, they can uh, surround the uh, topic. So this is the kind of thing that I think if Howard Roberts was alive, yeah, this is yeah. what, this is what he would have wanted to do because he was he was seeing twenty years into the future and seeing the potential of video and of computer power, and it just wasn't there yet. You know, you couldn't do any of that stuff. But he 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 was just thinking, if you could, this is what you would do. You know, and and so I just feel like wow, you know, after all these years, I'm still kind of doing what Howard was doing and I'm, I'm still trying to catch up, you know? Yeah. That's, that's but really I, cool. It, yeah. His influence is still there. Absolutely. Plan out the curriculum. It's it. I'm thinking what would Howard do all the way? You know, wow. that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. That it's, I wouldn't say full circle. I'd say it's like a linear uh, progression. Yeah. Really? That's, that's really cool. Yeah. I love the idea of the video thing um, in terms of um, that personal one-on-one, um, kind of uh, interaction in, in addition to the subscription kind of model, which is all over um, yeah. commerce, e- e-commerce these days, the subscription idea. So that sounds really, really cool. That's awesome. So um, how do people find out about that? Well, you basically, if you do a search for online, you know, blues guitar lessons or something like that, it'll probably pop up, but just go to www.artistworks.com and it's all there, you know. Great. Uh, they advertise they do facebook you know stuff and and there's all kinds of digital media that they do yeah awesome and what's the best way for people to keep up to date with what you're up to keith well i have a website but i i gotta confess i don't touch it (laughs) (laughs) if you go there it'll be kind of dusty um (laughs) uh you can go to uh the blasters.com you know and uh find out what the band is up to yep uh, and, uh, yeah, otherwise it's the artist work stuff. Uh, it, you know, I'm on Facebook, but again, I'm not much of an active user, but there's stuff floating around out there. So, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up in the age where you didn't promote yourself. So I still feel kind of awkward doing it. And, sure. uh, you know, people who have grown up in the digital age, it's, it's just like, well, obviously you're on Instagram and you're on Twitter. It's like, Nah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just uh, kind of the way it is. But uh, anyway, it's it, it gets out there to the people who want to find it. You know. Yeah, cool. I think your uh, your playing and and your your years of teaching experience um certainly speak for themselves, Keith. Keith will find yeah a wealth of great stuff. There's so many videos of you too. If you if. If you YouTube Keith Wyatt, there's so many lessons or jams or great things. That Paul Gilbert conversation you mentioned, that's on there. I I saw that. I loved it. It was so good. That's evidence of the, you know, the the digital age is that, you know, that used to be on VHS tapes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Go down and buy them for $24.95, you know, and that's that's done. So, uh, yeah, but it's all out there. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Hey, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great to meet you and hear um, hear about your amazing story. It's such a great career. 
Oh well, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate you you asking me, and it's an honor to be、uh, to be interviewed. I appreciate that. So I hope things go well with you and the and the site and everything else. Yeah, cool. Thank you, Keith. All right, man. Talk to you. All right, there you go, Keith Wyatt. What a great player, and what an amazing career in、uh, both playing and education. Still, lots, lots more to come from Keith and the Blasters and the online school of blues guitar. So check all that stuff out for sure. All right, thank you for joining me on the Guitar Speak podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or head over to guitarspeakpodcast.libsyn.com to check out all of our previous shows. They're free to download and listen to at your leisure. All right, thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next time. I think、uh, we should go out with a bit more of Keith's playing. This is a track called "Rebound" from the Blasters album 41144. We'll catch you next time. Bye now.